Hello, the Human Rights Council in Geneva voted on Thursday to increase scrutiny on what's happening in Ukraine after the Russian invasion. In addition to that story, we'll be heading to Afghanistan for the latest alarming UN assessments on food insecurity there, to the occupied West Bank after the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh, and to DPR Korea, where the World Health Organization is committed to help stop the spread of COVID-19. The good news is that we have some good news in the form of successful malaria vaccine trials, which could save tens of thousands of children's lives. Stay with us for that. And of course, closing comments from Solange Behatege Cortez. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. First, the news. The UN Human Rights Council met in special session on Thursday in Geneva, prompted by increasing concern over atrocities committed against civilians following Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February. A mounting number of reports and testimonies point to possible war crimes in Ukraine, particularly in areas controlled until recently by Russian forces, said UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet. These killings of civilians often appear to be intentional, carried out by snipers and soldiers. Civilians were killed when crossing that road or leaving their shelters to seek food and water. Highlighting the latest harrowing findings of UN investigators in the Kiev and Chernivev regions, Ms Bachelet told the forum that 1,000 civilian bodies had been found in the Kiev region alone. Some had been killed in hostilities, but others appeared to have been summarily executed. In Afghanistan, more than 19 million people face acute hunger. That's one in two people in the country, UN humanitarians warned. Amid continuing restrictions against women and girls, many Afghan families are even less able to help themselves. Here's Anthea Webb, the World Food Programme's Deputy Regional Director for Asia. In any situation where such an important portion of the population that women represent are unable to go to work, both because they've lost their jobs or because they are afraid to leave their houses or because of newly imposed restrictions. That is bound to have a disproportionate effect on a family's ability to feed themselves. Even before the Taliban takeover last August, drought triggered dire food insecurity across the country. And although a food emergency has been averted, more than 20,000 people in northeastern Gore province are facing catastrophic levels of hunger. So far this year, the World Food Programme has reached more than 16 million of the most needy people in Afghanistan, making it the world's largest humanitarian food operation. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has added his voice to international condemnation of the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh in the occupied West Bank. The Palestinian-American reporter for Al Jazeera TV was shot dead on Wednesday while covering an operation by Israeli security forces in Jenin. She was a veteran reporter and wearing a protective vest that clearly identified her as a journalist. There is uncertainty about who fired the fatal shot that killed Miss Akleh. Journalists at the scene reportedly disputed an Israeli account that Palestinian fighters may have been responsible. To North Korea, also known as DPRK, where the UN Health Agency has said that it is committed to help the country respond to COVID-19 after its first declared infection was reported in the media on Thursday. Responding to UN News, the World Health Organization, WHO, said that it was in touch with the authorities but has yet to receive an official report from the country's health ministry after reports that the highly contagious Omicron variant has been identified. Dr Edwin Salvador, WHO representative to DPR Korea, said that the UN agency had supported the country in developing its national preparedness and response plan for COVID-19. 
with partners including UN Children's Fund UNICEF and Gavi the Vaccine Alliance, WHO also supported DPR Korea's COVID-19 vaccine deployment plan. The headlines there. Now, as far as good news goes, there's not a lot of it about these days. Although this week, we do have something to put a smile on your face. It's the wonderful announcement that vaccine trials for malaria in three African countries, Ghana, Kenya and Malawi, have been successful, with children's lives saved, as I found out from Dr Mary Hamill, Senior Technical Officer at the World Health Organization. Here she is now. More than one million children have now received the world's first malaria vaccine and are benefiting from that added protection they're getting from the vaccine. And that is a real breakthrough. This is the first vaccine that we've had against malaria. It reduces severe malaria, severe illness, and death from malaria. So it's a new tool at a time when we need a new tool and need to make major new advances against malaria. It is an excellent initiative and it's going to save lots of lives. Maybe you could just explain why is malaria so deadly? What is it about it that means that this vaccine is a real lifesaver? Many people don't know that malaria continues to be a primary cause of childhood death worldwide, with the majority of those deaths happening in sub-Saharan Africa. Every year, almost half a million children die from malaria. That's a tragic, uh, huge number of children from a disease that's both preventable and treatable. But the problem is that malaria progresses very rapidly. From the time of first fever to death, it could take just 24 to 48 hours. And this is why prevention is so important. Many parents can't get to a facility that could adequately treat malaria in such a short time period. So this vaccine is one of a handful of tools we have to prevent malaria. And when we layer those tools, because none of them are 100% effective, we can see some really important impact and reductions in malaria. Thank you for that explanation. I think people might be interested to know about this vaccine, a bit more about it. And is it safe? So uh, this vaccine is safe, it's impactful, And we know from the pilot implementations that are ongoing in Malawi, Ghana, and Kenya, that parents want this vaccine. And they bring their children in in very high numbers. And we saw this even in the time of a global pandemic, that 70, 80, 90% of children, when they were five or six months of age, were brought in for this vaccine for the first dose. So the vaccine works by stimulating the body's own immune system to fight the very first stage of the malaria parasite as it enters the body, right when the mosquito bites the person and injects the malaria parasite under the skin. This is where the action of the vaccine and the immune response occurs before that parasite can enter the liver, develop, and come out into the bloodstream and cause symptoms. So you've had these promising results from Ghana, Kenya and Malawi, as you say. Maybe you could give us a bit more of this good news. I mean, how many children could it potentially save? It's estimated that if this vaccine was rolled out across sub-Saharan Africa, as it's recommended in areas of moderate to high malaria transmission, 40,000 to 80,000 
additional child lives could be saved each year. That is wonderful. And I guess the next question is who's going to pay for this? How do countries get hold of it? We've had so much concern and real disbelief over the lack of COVID vaccines. I mean, this one is needed more urgently than ever. This vaccine is going to be supported and reach children through a global alliance called the Global Alliance for Vaccine Initiative, Gavi. And Gavi supports low and middle income countries to receive vaccines through a a scheme they have that allows the vaccines to be provided to countries at very low cost. Now there is an urgency to get this vaccine to children because children are dying every minute from malaria, but we do have a gap in supply. There's only one manufacturer. There's no other market for a malaria vaccine other than low resource areas. So it hasn't been sold elsewhere before now. So that manufacturer is scaling up their manufacturing now. And yet we know that countries want this vaccine right now. So WHO is working with the manufacturer and other manufacturers and waiting for results for the next vaccines to come forward. Fantastic. And outside sub-Saharan Africa, where's the other major malaria-affected region? Because I think you said the continent of Africa represented 90% of all cases, but that's not to say that there isn't need for this vaccine elsewhere. Yeah, there are other places with with malaria. There's malaria in India, in Indonesia, in South America, and other places. Sub-Saharan Africa, where the majority of the burden is right now. But as we have more supply, the vaccine could potentially be used in other places as well. Thanks very much indeed to the UN Health Agency's Dr. Mary Hamill for taking the time to explain just how groundbreaking this malaria vaccine is and how welcome it is for parents who struggle to get their kids the prompt medical care they need when they fall sick because there's just not enough investment in healthcare where they live even though the WHO has been telling us that we need it for decades. We'll have to leave that discussion for another day, though, because Solange Bejatege-Cortez is with me now with her own memories of malaria busting for the UN back in Bolivia. Hi, Sol. Hola, Daniel. The first time I heard about malaria was in the 90s. As a consultant for the UN Indigenous Programme in Bolivia, I had to travel to Monte Azul, a small community in the north of the country, at the border with Brazil. You can reach Monte Azul only by boat on the Amazon River or by air. When we arrived, there were some cases of malaria and no medicines to help. Our pilot refused to sleep there, even though we were supposed to stay two days. He said that female mosquitoes bite especially at night. I was young and unaware of the real danger. Malaria was something that happens to others. So we decided to spend the night in Cobija, the nearest village to Monte Azul at the very top of the country. And we came back the next day with malaria medicines. In Monte Azul, malaria was an inevitable fact of life, part of the landscape, death with wings. The medicines were effective but only a temporary solution. Today, the vaccine against malaria gives us real hope. 
it is a great moment for the humanity. I just hope it will reach Monte Azul. When I think that something as small as a mosquito can cause such a big damage, I understand why some people call them the world's perfect killer. They are a sort of female Dracula crossing centuries, causing death. Daniel, do you know that Shakespeare mentioned ague, an old English word for malaria, in eight of his plays? In The Tempest, Stefano mistakes his trembling and delirium for an attack of malaria and tries to cure the symptoms by drinking alcohol. We have often spoken about how misinformation has helped the coronavirus to spread. And here we can see that the same applies to malaria. Yes, the discovery of the first vaccine against malaria is historic, but it is one thing to discover it and quite another to ensure its equal distribution. We face similar problems trying to reach distribute vaccines for COVID-19 and many areas are still not getting what they need. Hopefully, though, lessons have been learned, experience gained, and the efforts to reach communities will continue and improve. The job starts now, from sub-Saharan countries to Monte Azul, where people are not able to access vaccines. The vaccines need to go to them. Perhaps we should ask mosquitoes how to reach them. Thanks, Sol. That is a super idea. And of course, mosquitoes have been genetically engineered to cause infertility in a bid to eradicate malaria. So that's sort of along the same lines. I think also that it's worth underscoring what Dr. Hamill said just now about vaccines being only one part of the answer against malaria. We need more bed nets. We need fewer places for mosquitoes to breed, along with better education of the risks. And yes, of course, more money spent on helping remote communities from Africa to Asia and South America. Listeners, that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for following the work of the United Nations. It's great to have you with us wherever you are. Please share this with your nearest and dearest because we do appreciate it. We'll be back next week with an interview with the wonderful Cameroon women's land rights activist, Cecile Njebet, on the work of her association to ensure that one half of the population has the opportunity to work the land and to own some of it too. She is irrepressible and I hope you'll join us. Until then, bye-bye for now. (laughs) 